Hello, and welcome to another episode of Her Head in Films. I'm Caitlin, and I'm your host. On this podcast, I share my personal thoughts and feelings about the films that I watch. They tend to be mainly art house and world cinema. What makes this podcast unique is that I weave together my life experiences with an in-depth discussion of the films that I love. I explore the impact that cinema has on me and why I connect so deeply to it. As I like to say, my head isn't in the clouds, my head is in films. Many years ago, one night, I was watching Turner Classic Movies, and I came across a film called Brief Encounter, directed by David Lane, and it came out in 1945. And that is what I'm focusing on for today's episode. All those years ago, I fell deeply in love with this film, and I still love it. I periodically rewatch it, and it's just one of those films that has really stayed with me throughout the years. It's about two ordinary people who are married to other people, and they have children, and they meet each other in a train station, and they start to fall in love with each other, even though they are married. And it's about their struggle with that and their blossoming love for each other. There are spoilers in this episode. If you haven't seen Brief Encounter, I definitely recommend that you watch it. It's on Filmstruck. Um as I record this episode. Watch the film. You'll see how wonderful it is. And then listen to my episode where I give you my in-depth analysis and talk about why this film has such staying power, why I think it's truly a timeless classic that will live forever. And I do think it's one of the greatest love stories, greatest romantic films that I've ever personally seen. So I hope that you stick around for this episode and listen to everything I have to say because I really adore this film and I'm really happy that I could cover it for you on the podcast. Her Head in Films has a Patreon where you can financially support the podcast on a monthly basis and you can also access rewards and extras. You can find more information at patreon.com slash herheadinfilms. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com backslash Her Head in Films. At one level, you get a shout out on each episode. So I'd love to give a shout out to my wonderful patrons, Tyler, Max, David, Juan, Iris, Teal, JD, Vanessa, Spunden, Polina, Olivia, Carolyn, Jesse, Feminist Overlord, Michelle, and Lindsay. Thank you all for being patrons. You make the podcast possible, and I appreciate all of your support, and I appreciate all of you who listen. If financial support is not an option for you, and I definitely understand if it isn't, please consider reviewing the podcast on iTunes and or Stitcher. If you write a review on iTunes, I will read it in a future episode of the podcast, and I'll leave out your name in order to respect your privacy. You can also tell your friends and followers about Her Head in Films if you think that the content that I create would resonate with them. Or you could just send me an encouraging message or a comment or interact with me in a positive way on social media. I am on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just search for Her Head in Films and I'll pop up. You can see all my social media accounts listed in the show notes of each episode. So... 
now let's talk about Brief Encounter. I'm so excited to share my thoughts and feelings with you about this profoundly uh, wonderful film. I don't know if there is such a thing as a perfect film, but I do think that Brief Encounter comes as close as we're ever going to get to a perfect film. It, it feels that way to me. It's endlessly rewatchable. I've seen it so many times over the years, and I want to tell you the story of how I discovered this film and why that is important to me. The process of discovery sometimes is almost as important as these films and as these movies. And I, I love that. I, I watch a lot of things. I don't share everything I watch. I do share a lot of what I watch online and on social media. Probably too much. And some of you probably think I'm insane or some mad woman just watching films all the time. But the thing is, is that I, I'm not always watching the classics. I'm not always watching maybe what you would expect me to watch. Sometimes I'll watch a film because of certain actors in it. Because it's about a writer that I'm interested in. Because the trailer looked interesting. Because the grass uh, looks beautiful in it. Or... Um, the clothes that they're wearing interests me, or it's about a subject that fascinates me. Um, it, it's, it's intuitive. It's just something that I follow. And I'm really grateful for cinema in that way, because it's just this endless process of discovering films and seeing what I like, seeing what doesn't work for me. But I'm a big believer in films as catalysts. And I've talked about this, I think, in a long ago episode. But I think it bears repeating that sometimes a film in and of itself is not a great film. It may not be that well written. The acting may not be great. There are just different parts about it that don't completely cohere and come together. But that film can lead you somewhere else. It can lead you to a book. It can lead you to an artist. It can get you interested about a historical event. It can conjure a memory for you. So I don't know if there's any kind of bad film out there for me. I think sometimes there is, sometimes there isn't. But it depends on how it impacts me in the moment how it touches me or, or how it resonates with me. And even if the whole film doesn't totally work for me, there are parts of it that can lead to different discoveries. And that's happened so many times in my life where a film, and they tend to be biopics, films about people that I didn't know much about, you know, have led me to a writer, led me to an artist. And that can be a life-changing event. So... I'm a big believer in that even if a film is not great, sometimes it can lead you to things that are great. And so you didn't really waste your time because it led to another discovery. It led to something else. Um, I want to be totally honest, though, before I go on with this episode. Um, I feel really sad right now. I feel sad this week. Um, there's no particular reason for it. I wouldn't say I'm depressed. I wouldn't say I'm in a depressed state or episode. But I do feel like a sorrow in me right now. And that may come through the episode. 
it may not be as good of an episode as I'd like it to be. I just try to do my best and that's something that I've also come to terms with through doing her head in films is that not every single episode I do is going to be great or perfect or revelatory but if it's the best that I can do at the moment when I'm recording then it's enough and I've really tried to throw away perfectionism. Doesn't mean I don't want to do a good job. I don't want to offer you a quality episode or anything like that. But there's only so much I can do sometimes when I do feel a sense of sorrow or but you know, I think I feel that all the time. I think more and more in my life I just feel a kind of despair or sorrow in me that never fully goes away. It's always there. And it's just it's just a product of things that I've been through in my life. A lot of loss and grief and disillusion and loneliness and this feeling that I don't fit in and that there is no place where I belong and people don't understand me and I can't connect. I can't connect. And um, I just feel a sorrow and I think about the past a lot and I think about my memories and um, I'm very nostalgic. I'm that kind of person. And so it, I just feel this weight on me right now. I just want to be honest about it. But I want to talk about Brief Encounter because I really love this film. Before I go into my full review, I want to talk a moment about how I discovered Brief Encounter. And I don't know the exact year because my memory is terrible. I, I never can remember the years when things happen. But it was quite a few years ago. I will say that. It was, pro- it was definitely pre-internet. So I didn't really get online until about 2010 when I was around 20 years old, 21 years old. Um, so it was definitely pre-2010. One night, um, I was watching Turner Classic Movies. And that's how I used to watch films before the internet. That's how most of us watched classic films or art house films was through this glorious channel, Turner Classic Movies, which still exists. No commercial breaks, and you get to see old films the way they were meant to be seen without bunches of commercials. And I think I was probably watching it like at 8 o'clock. That's when Robert Osborne used to have his sort of thing that he hosted, like each night in prime time, like at 8 o'clock. He would introduce a film and, and talk a bit about it, and then they would show it. And one night he talked about Brief Encounter. And I'd never heard of it, you know, directed by David Lane, 1945, um, Celia Johnson and Trevor Howard. Um, I had never heard of this film, this British film. And I can't remember what he said, but he got me very interested in it. And so I decided to watch it that night because because of his hosted intro and what he had to say. And usually when Robert Osborne really recommended a film, I listened to that. And he, he died recently, like, what, a few years ago. And um, that was a really sad loss for me because he felt like someone who was so much a part of my life, so much a part of my childhood, when I used to have my TV on at night, and I would go to sleep to old black and white films, you know, that's what I used to do, and, you know, the TV would be flashing, um, those beautiful black and white movies, and those beautiful stars on the screen, right, 
And so when he died, it felt like part of that died in a way. It was just another reminder that I'm not a child anymore and that my childhood is gone. I hate those reminders. I can't handle them at all. They make me really deeply, deeply sad. I think I'll always be deeply sad about that, about losing my childhood, about that part of my life being over and losing so much. And so it was really hard when I heard that he died. But he changed my life in so many ways. The the films that he recommended on Turner Classic Movies. He's the person that got me interested in The Passion of Joan of Arc, which I have an episode about, which was a really important film to me. It, it really... Um, inspired me and it was just such a revelation to me and it got me interested in art house cinema it definitely changed my life and brief encounter that kind of film for me um i watched it and i was just smitten and i was so in love with it and it's one of those films that you definitely want to recommend to people if they don't know about it I'm not quite sure how famous the film is outside of Britain. I know that within Britain it's quite popular and quite well known. But outside of uh, the UK, I'm not sure. I don't know if people know it as much as they should here in the United States. And to me, it is just a glorious film and as close to perfection. Maybe it is perfect. Just everything about it is so perfect that that is the word that and I don't say that a lot about films I, I do not say that a film is perfect but this one just everything about it comes together for me um so I just wanted to tell a, a moment about you know seeing it on Turner Classic Movies and ever since then I've, I've watched it many times it's one of those films I, I never get tired of it and I always like watching it and I knew I really wanted to revisit it for the podcast, and I wanted to talk about it with you. So it was released in 1945, but it's actually set in 1938. It's set in the time before the war, which I think is important because it means that these characters do not have that existential threat, the horror of the world of World War II happening, which was quite devastating for Britain and quite devastating in London. Um, there's not that bearing down on them. They're just able to be regular, ordinary people in a time where there is not war. Um, and it's directed by David Lane. I've seen a few David Lane films. I've seen this. This was obviously my first film by him. I've seen The Passionate Friends, which is a very lovely film and very uh, visually beautiful. And I have covered another film by Lane on the podcast, and that's Summertime, which stars Katherine Hepburn, which I definitely recommend to you, especially during the summer. Uh, it's the perfect summer film, I think, and Catherine plays um, a spinster, I guess you would call her, who goes to Venice, Italy, and she falls in love, and um, it's it's in this glorious technicolor it's it's a beautiful film and I talked all about it in, in my episode dedicated to it um so those are the three David Lane films I've seen and this is one of his many collaborations with Noel Coward 
and um, they did quite a few films that Noel uh, wrote and that were based on his plays. Brief Encounter itself is based on the Coward play called Still Life, so it's adapted from that. And in a nutshell, it's about a woman. She's a wife and mother of two children. Her name is Laura Jessen, and one day at a train station, she meets Alec Harvey, Dr. Alec Harvey, who is also married with two children, and over the course of the film, they end up falling in love with each other, and this precipitates a moral and personal crisis of what do what do they do about this love that they feel for each other while knowing that they have a duty and an obligation to their spouses. And the film is really about that struggle and that conflict for them, especially Laura. This film really focuses on Laura's perspective and her life. And throughout the film, she's actually narrating in her mind the affair that she's had with Alec. I mean, I don't know if you can call it an affair. They never sexually consummate the relationship. They never have sex with each other, but in every other way, it is an affair. You know, they kiss and they share intimate details about their lives and they are, you know, doing all of this in secret. And she's actually telling her husband about it in her mind. Everything that she wishes that she could say to him and the torment that she feels because this film is about ordinary, good, decent people. People who would never imagine leaving their families or leaving their children. And it's, it's about the emotions that, that um, come out of them because of what they are doing, but also their resistance to what's happening and their knowledge that they cannot be together. They just can't. They they have an obligation to their families and they can't even conceive. Laura especially just cannot conceive leaving her children and leaving her husband. So this is, to me, this is a deeply romantic film. It's a film about intense and passionate love that sort of takes you over and, and how intense and life-changing and almost violent it can be to your sense of self to be so consumed by another person and and for people that didn't think that could happen to them you know Laura didn't think she could fall in love this way or that she could feel this way and it's it's strange to call it a romantic film in a way because actually these two characters are doing something wrong you know they are cheating on their spouses and yet it is a deeply romantic film about unexpected love and but also two good decent people who do not act on it you know so there's that conflict in the film as well but i do love that it's from Laura's perspective and that it's about her inner life and what she is feeling and there's always that um that conflict between who she is on the outside with her properness and her politeness and all of that. And then all these violent things that are happening inside her mind and her body, all these emotions that she feels, you know, 
And through the voiceover, we're given access to those emotions. But Celia Johnson, as Laura, also conveys those emotions through her face and her eyes. And I think she gives a masterful performance in this film. The things that she's able to convey with her face and her body. I mean, if somebody's thinking of becoming an actress or whatever, like, I think this would be a performance to watch. It's a performance in subtlety, but also in complexity, you know, because so many different emotions will come over her face. I just, I never get tired of this film. And it begins in a train station. Much of it takes place in a train station. There, and it just brings back that romance of, of, the, of train stations and, and the steam. You know, I live in the rural south. I, I don't take trains. I don't, you know, I'm sure if some of you live in cities and places like that, you take trains and it's normal to you. But to someone like me, there's still, I guess, a romance attached to it that I've always wanted to take a train ride or something like that. And I've never traveled outside the U.S., so I haven't been to the train stations, you know, in in London and all around the world. And I'm sure some of you take that for granted that you get to see things like that. And those of us who don't have the money to travel or, you know, just don't have the ability to do it, like, we still think about those things and it, it becomes romantic in our minds. But there's almost this part of me that would never want to actually travel to Britain or France, or Italy, these places that I idealize and romanticize in my mind, because I'm sure that the reality of those places would never fit um, to my fantasy of them. But this film, it, it really starts, it begins with the ending, in a way. We meet Alec and Laura in the refreshment room of this train station, and at first, we don't know who they are. They're just this man and woman sitting at this table. But you can tell that they're distressed. And so the narrative devices in this film are fascinating. The way it uses the voiceover. The way it starts with the end of the relationship. And then works sort of backwards. Where Laura is narrating to us how she met Alec. And how... Um, how they came to know each other and fall in love. And then the end of the film circles back to the beginning and explains things that we see in the beginning that we don't quite understand. Because at the beginning, Laura and Alec are there and one of Laura's acquaintances shows up. And you can tell that Alec is very upset and he has to leave. And um, you can tell that both of them are distressed. But they're not able to share it, you know, and so he leaves, and it's very sudden, and we can tell that Laura is overcome, that Laura becomes sick. She's overcome, and she's devastated, and the brilliance of the opening is that it pulls you in, because you don't know yet. You don't know who this woman is. You don't know who the man was. You don't know their relationship to each other. And you don't understand why she is so sick and not feeling well. And um, so you're immediately intrigued by this situation. And I think that was a really brilliant thing on the part of you know, Noel Coward. The way he wrote it and the way David Lean um, filmed it. And I, I, I linger on this for a moment because I think that... This is a simple story in a lot of ways. 
this is a story about two ordinary people who fall in love and can't be together. It's a romantic film, but it's a heartbreaking film because the two of these people can't be together. But at the same time, in order for them to be together, they would have to do things that is that are against their morality and against who they are. So for them to be together, they would have to not be who they are, or they would have to drastically change who they are and compromise their morality and their values. And so actually, it's probably better that they don't end up together because the wake of devastation that it would cause you know, what it would do to their spouses, what it would do to their children, them not being able to be in their lives and them leaving them. These two characters can't do that. They're good, decent, nice people. And they just can't do it, even though they ache to do it. Um, they would have to change who they are in order to be together. That's sort of the irony of it. But this is a simple story in a lot of ways, but it is not told in a simple way. I think it's actually told in a really brilliant, innovative, interesting way. The way it circles back, the way it uses voiceover, the way it takes us into Laura's inner life. And the voiceover starts pretty early. And that's how we find out um, what she's feeling. And that's how we get access to her inner thoughts. And she's on the train with that acquaintance who really invaded and interrupted um, Laura and Alex's departure and their parting. And inside, Laura is upset about it. You know, she's upset that that was taken away from them. And she wishes this woman would shut up. She even says that she wishes she would die. And then she regrets saying that because she's so polite. And she has this really beautiful monologue, um, She's just sitting there looking so miserable and in so much pain, you know, and we don't yet understand why. And it's not until the end that we understand just how much turmoil is going on inside of her. But in this monologue, we get an idea and I have to quote this because it's gorgeous. The writing in this film is stunning. She says, quote, this can't last. This misery can't last. I must remember that and try to control myself. Nothing lasts, really, neither happiness nor despair, not even life lasts very long. There will come a time in the future when I shan't mind about this anymore, when I can look back and say quite, when I can look back and say quite peacefully and cheerfully how silly I was. No, no, I don't want that time to come ever. I want to remember every minute, always, always to the end of my days, unquote. So it's like this love affair that she'll have to keep hidden for the rest of her life. And actually, as I just read that, I got to thinking it reminded me of The Bridges of Madison County by Clint Eastwood and stars Meryl Streep and Clint Eastwood. And don't even uh, act like you don't like that film, okay? <laughs> I love The Bridges of Madison County. That might be one of my favorite Meryl Streep performances that nobody talks about. And if you've seen the ending... Ah, uh, it's too much. It makes me cry every time. I love the Bridges of Madison County. I've even read the book, okay? <laughs> I just love that film. But it's something similar where the Meryl Streep character has this affair while her husband's gone 
and she has this affair with Clint, the Clint Eastwood character, and it's only for a brief time. And she has this chance where she could leave and she could go away with him and she could leave her family and she doesn't. She stays and she does the right moral thing. And then she writes a letter to her children and tells them about all of this. And so in a way, it sort of reminds me of that, that just as that Meryl Streep character kept this love affair hidden from her family, I imagine that even though the film doesn't follow Laura into the future, into the rest of her life, that is what she will do with this affair with Alec, that it's something that she doesn't want to forget, you know, that even though it's caused her pain, and she certainly wants the pain to end. She does not want to lose the memories of this love affair that she had and what she felt with Alec. So she goes home and she's sitting with her husband, Fred, and they have a very sedate, ordinary life. He's just sitting there doing the crossword puzzle. And it's just so interesting how she's sitting there and she's feeling so much inside of her and he can't even tell you know she's hiding it and he's not really trying to you know figure out how she feels for women I think a lot of we get this stereotype of women as being very emotional and very this and very that um these stereotypes and I think for a lot of women emotion our emotions still stay inside of us you know that all of us have inner lives, and I'm not talking just women, you know, men too, all kinds of people. Like, often there's so much more going on inside of us than we ever show other people. And that's a fascinating part of this film too, is what is hidden inside of us and what we share with others. And how on the outside we can seem calm and, and normal and okay, but then inside we are just losing it the way Laura is and in so much pain and misery and I often have felt like I've you know hidden my emotions and and done things like that um and then you definitely get that from Laura and she's sitting there with Fred and she can't talk to him you know she can't say any of the things that she truly feels so she starts to narrate the story inside her mind And throughout the rest of the film, we're told this story through Laura's perspective and through her mind and her feelings and her thoughts. And it's actually a really beautiful film about a woman's life, a woman's inner life. And that's a big part of why I love it so much is that I guess they could have told the story from Alec's perspective, couldn't they? Or from both of their perspectives. But they chose to tell it from Laura's, and I think that makes the film a lot stronger. And in her voiceover, she talks about how she always thought that their life together would be enough, but that meeting Alec and falling in love with him over the last few weeks has shaken her confidence in that, that she realized that her life with Fred was not enough. And she knows that she can't tell him she can't even tell them once they're older because if she tells them when they're 60 or 70 then he'll look back on their life together and question everything about them you know he'll question her love and question all of that so she can never tell him she can never tell anybody 
And she says, quote, I didn't think such violent things could happen to ordinary people, unquote. And of course, that's what this film is about. It's about violent things happening to ordinary people. People who would never uh, think that they could fall in love or they could cheat on their husbands or they could have an affair. And yet this is what happens to Laura. And yet I think this monologue and this voiceover is also a way not just for her to unburden herself to Fred in a way that is not going to get her in trouble. You know, it's almost like she's confessing without actually vocalizing it or speaking it. She's just confessing in her mind. Um, But it's also a way for her to relive her last few weeks with Alec. Because now Alec's gone. He's going to Africa. She's not going to see him again, most likely. And so through this monologue and through talking to Fred in her mind, she's able to relive the romance and the the um she's able to relive the romance with Alec. That's what she's able to do. And I I love this film because I really like films about like I don't know how to put it into words like just random events that can happen in your life and that can completely change your life like I can't think off the top of my head about um like a specific films that explore this but with this film in particular um she is at a train station and the way that she meets Alec is that she goes outside she's gonna get on the train or whatever train comes by and a piece of grit gets stuck in her eye and she can't get it out she's just really struggling to get it out she tries water and it it just won't come out and so Alec happens to be there and he happens to be a doctor and he gets the piece of grit out of her eye so it's just this completely random encounter that happens between the two of them and yet it sets off this series of events this series of meetings that they they keep bumping into each other in different places and it starts to get them interested in each other and then the rest is history but it's like what if she'd never got that piece of grit in her eye what if she had never met Alec at all what if she would walked out of that refreshment room and the grit never got in her eye and she went and got on her train and nothing came of it nothing ever happened and um, that's something that's sort of interesting about a film by Adrian Lyne. It's called Unfaithful. It has Richard Gere and Diane Lane and Olivier Martinez. And I've seen this film many times. <laughs> um, it, I think it's one of Diane Lane's most stunning performances. I, I'm a huge Diane Lane fan. I feel like she's incredibly underrated as an actress. And I really don't think she's given the roles to show everything she can do. I love her in that. I love her in Under the Tuscan Sun. I'm a huge Diane Lane fan. But something that I like about Unfaithful at the end of the film is when it imagines, well, and if you haven't seen Unfaithful, Diane Lane is married to Richard Gere in the film. And she has an affair with Olivier Martinez, a much younger man. Now, how you could cheat on Richard Gere, I don't know. I love Richard Gere. (laughs) Like, one of the most beautiful men, in my opinion, ever. But, I've digressed. 
But I love at the end of that film how after the affair and after everything that's happened, not going to spoil it for you, um, she imagines, or I don't know if she's thinking in her mind about it, but the film creates this scenario where she never met Olivier Martinez because they just happened to meet one day. Um, it's like this really windy day, and I can't remember. God, it's been years since I've seen this film. But the film imagines that what if this random encounter that the two of them had 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 never happened? So that everything that came as a result of that affair didn't happen either. That instead of her meeting him, instead of them getting interested in each other, she just went about her life, went about her day, and the two of them never came in contact with each other. Or it was just sort of very casual, and then they went their separate ways. It's a really interesting part of that film, I think. And I'm just compelled by that idea of, like, you can meet a person, or just something random can happen in your life, and a lot of a lot of pain can come from it. There, there are instances where a lot of beauty can come from those, those type of things happening. And then there are things in your life that happen that cause a lot of pain. And if just that one thing had not happened, then none of the other things would have occurred either. And so she just gets this piece of grit in her eye and everything else comes from it, you know. And he's able to remove it and he leaves. But then at another time on the street, they randomly um, they randomly uh, run into each other. They say hello. But after that second time, she already starts to think of him. She's, she's at the train station that evening and she watches a train go by and she starts to wonder if he's in there. So she already starts to sort of dream him in a way, to start to dream this relationship that eventually does happen. He's starting to creep into her mind in a way that I'm sure she probably never expected. And then once they really start to get to know each other, it's one Thursday when she's at a restaurant. And of course, it's full, except for her one chair at her table. And Alex shows up, and of course, he sits with her. And they talk, and they laugh, and she talks about how every Thursday... She goes into town and she does her shopping and she returns her library book and she goes to the movies. And that's sort of her weekly ritual that she does every Thursday. You know, she's just such an ordinary woman. You know, your ordinary, typical housewife. But it's important to not stereotype people that or generalize about certain groups of people. That just because she is a mother, just because she's a housewife, just because she seems very ordinary, doesn't mean that she doesn't have struggles, doesn't mean she doesn't have an inner life, doesn't mean she doesn't have dreams and desires and achings. And um, she's so much more than that, obviously, through this voiceover. We get to know her emotions. And Alec asks if he can come to the movies with her. So that's really how it all begins. It begins so simply, you know, just going to the movies together, having jokes and laughing about things, because that's what's really beautiful about their relationship is that they kind of, they kind of bond through laughing and just um, noticing the same things and 
they have sort of an immediate comfort with each other, an immediate intimacy with each other. And that's always something I think that recurs in these romantic films and is that it's two people who instead of feeling like strangers around each other, which we usually feel 99.9% of the time when we are around people, or maybe it's just me. I'm not very good at social situations and I have really bad social anxiety. Um, but often, and this is what I love about romantic films actually, is that I love how when these two characters meet usually, whether it's a man or a woman or two men or two women, there tends to be an immediate comfort level. Like they just immediately bond through something, through a shared joke or, or whatever. And it just starts from there that I think the way that you open up to people or that you connect to people is, is through feeling comfortable around them. It's feeling like you can share your thoughts, share your feelings, you know, and you get that with Alec and Laura pretty immediately, you know, and, um, later on they are at the refreshment room at the train station and having tea and pastries. (laughs) And, um, he starts to talk about what he does and he's a doctor And he believes a lot in preventive medicine instead of looking for cures, that it's better to try and prevent disease. And that's actually uh, really relevant to like now. I was thinking about that when he was going on about preventive medicine, because that's something that people have been talking more about lately is how do we prevent getting illnesses or diseases in the first place? What things can you do to prevent it rather than just trying to come up with a cure or focusing just on curing things? So that was actually pretty relevant, I thought. And he specializes in a lung condition that involves inhalation of of dust. And he goes to a local hospital and he uh, observes coal miners who happen to have this condition or something like that. And as he's talking about this, he's very passionate about what he does as a doctor. And he actually believes that doctors should be guided by a sense of duty and a sense of goodness, of wanting to do good in the world. And, and Laura is just taken by him as, as he talks about this. Um, And she says that he looks like a little boy and she just says it, you know, I mean, she's just met him. But they've already gone to the movies and he's talking in front of her and you can tell that she just is starting to feel something for him and that I think she sees a goodness in him. And I think that that's the moment she really falls in love with him, that she starts to feel something that she had not expected. And and it's just strange how those moments can happen. And he wants to see her again. And her her sense of duty kicks in and she refuses. And something I noticed throughout the film this time watching it that I don't think I had maybe noticed as much the other times I watched it, which was which has been many, many times, is the way that Alec is really the instigator of all of it. That he is the one sort of egging everything on. I'm not saying that Laura is not a participant. I would never say that. But he is the one that asks to go to the movies with her. 
he is the one that says he wants to see her again, even though she refuses at first and, and doesn't want to or doesn't seem to because she's in conflict about her values that she knows she shouldn't see him again. Um, but he insists, you know, he doesn't like back off when she says no. He pushes it. He says, well, you know, I want to see you again next Thursday, same time and same place. And she she relents. She gives in. I'm not saying she doesn't want to give in, but it's just something that made me a little bit uneasy, I think. I don't know if uneasy is the right word, but it just, it occurred to me as I was watching. I was like, oh, okay, he's the one that's sort of insisting on a lot of this stuff. He's pushing back against her when she kind of doesn't want to do things, but she usually gives in to it. And I'm not sure how I feel about that. <laughs> I'll just be honest. Yeah, it's just something that I noticed. Not saying she doesn't want him or that she's not an active participant in this. But I just noticed throughout the film that it was more him egging it on, him insisting. And her being the one to say, oh, we shouldn't do this. Oh, this is wrong. We have we have spouses. We have children. Um but she's already very deep in this. And I think she's deeper in it than she ever thought she would be. And I think she's becoming someone else in the process at times. And becoming someone she isn't used to being. And when they part that time, there's this really uh, powerful scene, I think, where Celia Johnson is really masterful. And she watches his train leave and you can see everything on her face. You can see the longing. And you can see the confusion uh, that she feels about what she is feeling. How intense and how powerful it is for her. And I think it starts to dawn on her what they are doing. And how wrong it is. And also how dangerous it is. She feels the danger. That's what she says. She actually uses that word. She knows that if Fred was to find out. If friends were to find out that this would be terrible that this could endanger her marriage and that this would absolutely be seen as crossing a very important line um so she feels a lot of conflict about it later on she goes home and she does mention alec alec to her husband she says that she met this doctor and he took her to the movies and she even suggests inviting him to dinner and Fred has no reaction to it. I mean, he's not bothered at all. But I think it's because he just trusts her implicitly. I think they trust each other. They have that kind of marriage where, okay, you met a guy and went to the movies. Fred doesn't even, his mind doesn't even go to, well, Laura must have cheated on me. He doesn't even go there, you know. And I think it shows how much he trusts her and how they have that um, that kind of uh, belief in each other's morality and decency. And he also just doesn't come off like the jealous type. You know, he's he just wants to do his crossword puzzle at the end of the day. <laughs> um, so later on, um, they meet on another Thursday. And this is like, um, I think, about the third time that they've met. There was a time before that when he was called away at work and he couldn't show up until the very end um but 
they spend this other Thursday together where they go to the movies. They're laughing at Donald Duck. And then they sneak out early and they go to like this park or this botanical garden and they go out on the water in a boat. And she says that she's so happy and, and the happiness of it makes her feel ashamed that instead of feeling guilty the way that she should, she actually enjoys herself. And she knows that her happiness is what would hurt Fred that that her being this happy with a stranger her being so happy with someone other than fred would be heartbreaking to him and that's always the conflict with the film too as a viewer is like i said at the the beginning i call this a romantic film i consider this a love story just like i would consider the bridges of madison county a great romance and love story it's about unrequited love. It's about two people that can't be together. But I still consider it romantic. But with, but in this case, it's two people who are technically doing something wrong. You know, they're doing something that their happiness and their joy would hurt the people in their lives. So it makes them happy. But everybody around them would be hurt by what they're doing. So that's always the unsettling part of the film, I think, as you're watching it, is that you're so happy for them. You're so happy for Laura and Alec. And it's really beautiful to watch them fall in love with each other. But then you know that they, first of all, they can't be together. And second of all, if they were to be together, what they would have to do to make that happen would be devastating to their families. So from the beginning, this is tragic in a way. You know, from the beginning, you know, well, they can't be together. It's never going to work. But there's just something beautiful about this relationship. But I would say that there's also something beautiful about them not being together. I know that's weird to say, but there's something beautiful about these two people who do value their families and do put their families first. And, you know, some of you listening might disagree, like, I'll be the first to say, do I absolutely wish they could be together? Yeah. There's a part of me that's like, just be together. You know, leave your families. Run away. Um, let's do this. You know, of course I want them to be together. But that's not who they are as people. And in order for them to be together, they have to completely um, be who they're not. They don't want to hurt people. Laura does not want to hurt people. I think maybe Alec could. I think maybe Alec could leave his wife and kids. But I can't imagine Laura ever doing it. She, and, how, and how would that taint the relationship? Say they did leave their families and end up to, together. We had a brief encounter too. Thank God there was no um, sequel. Thank God. Nobody needs to remake this. Nobody needs to do a sequel to it. Leave it alone, Hollywood, please. Well, actually, I read that there was a TV movie version made of Brief Encounter. I think it has Sophia Loren in it. And that really shocked me. I was like, really? Okay. Um, yeah, no, please don't do that. Please don't touch this film ever. Um, but say they ended up together. Well, I, I really think Laura would just be eaten alive by guilt. <laughs> And she would be tormented by what she did to her family. You know, either way, she can't win. Because staying with her family and not being with Alec, she's sort of tormented by that love that she's lost. 
but then if she had left her family she would have been tormented by leaving her family so she did what she felt was right you know by not doing it um but they're on the boat together and alec falls into it and they end up going and having tea at the boatman's place like the boatman's house i I don't know the terms and it's the first time really when they acknowledge that they love each other and she insists that they be sensible about this that they're really not free to love each other um but later on when they're walking to the train station they they do kiss you know and um so she tries to be sensible but she gives in to that desire that she feels and alec has really disrupted her life in so many ways but she has all but he has also i think opened up her life and i think he's shown her possibilities that here is this woman who lives this very dull ordinary um typical life in a lot of ways that it seems to me like the same things happen every day for her it's very routine it's very predictable you know every thursday she's taking her library book back and she's going to the movies and probably the only sense of romance or excitement she gets is through the movies because her life is so just you know predictable and ordinary in a lot of ways and Alec comes into it and I think he brings something else to her life and sort of activates this part of her that maybe she didn't know was there. I know that sounds so cliche, but sometimes we don't know everything about ourselves like we think we do, but sometimes we can meet certain people or we can encounter certain situations and we react to them in ways that we wouldn't expect about ourselves that we might think of ourselves as good and moral but when we are in a certain situation we're not as moral as we thought we were so laura may have thought oh i would never i would never kiss another man and then here she is kissing another man and i really love this scene it's after they've kissed and she's on the train going home and she's so happy and giddy she's not ashamed at all and she thinks of a future with Alec. Um, he makes her feel alive and in love and on cloud nine. And on her train window, all these different um, images appear on it. There's her face looking in the window. And then there's all these fantasies in her mind of her future life with Alec. And it shows them traveling the world you know, um, and she's very glamorously dressed and it shows them traveling and it shows them on a boat together. And, um, she looks very glamorous and beautiful and they're living like this jet set kind of romantic life. And so you really see her fantasies and her desires play out on this train window and I love that again this is what I say this is a simple story but it was not directed or written in a simple way there are these narrative devices there are these camera techniques that are used to convey Laura's inner life and her inner desires and fantasies and to make them visible to us and to make them 
uh, listenable to us, that we hear her desires through her words, and we also see her desires through these images that pass on that window, uh, that window, that train window. And we see her thinking about this other life that she could have, these other possibilities that she could have with Alec, or maybe what she could have had if she had met Alec before Fred. But here is this timing in her life where she meets Alec many years after meeting Fred. And, um, but of course, all these images disappear from that window. And she's back to her ordinary life, her, her face in the window. But her affair with Alec, I think, is a way for her to escape the ordinary, escape the mundane, and to be sort of outside of that reality. But progressively over the film... Laura has to compromise herself, and this is what starts to make her relationship with Alec um, difficult for her. Because after that ride home, she goes and she goes to Fred, and she starts to lie. And that's when the shame really starts to trickle in. She claims that on the day she lunched with a friend, with Mary Norton, and then she has to call up Mary and tell Mary, oh, well, I told Fred we lunched together, so don't let me down if he sees you, you know, back me up. So she's already started to paint herself into this corner, and she's already starting, starting to be someone that she doesn't recognize. And then, of course, later on, Laura and Alec go to a restaurant, and guess who's there? Mary Norton. <laughs> and she sees um, them together. And I think she certainly has some suspicions about what's going on. That here's Laura who's called her and asked her to lie for her. And then here's Laura with, with this Dr. Harvey. So I have a feeling that Mary Norton definitely has suspicions um, about that. And then not only does she start to lie to Fred, you know, and lie to a lot of other people in her life, but then she is put in this really compromising situation, again, really instigated by Alec, where he wants them to go to um, his friend's apartment. They call it a flat in the movie. And at first, as always, she refuses. She doesn't want to do it, but... Um, but and she does start to head home, you know. So I'm not saying that Alec forces her to do anything. I think a lot of this is a product of her own internal struggle. Where she wants to be with him, but then she wants to be a good person. She wants to honor the vows that she made. The the promises she made to her husband. And um, I think she's just always struggling with that throughout the film. She's going to go back to the train station, but she decides not to. And she runs back to the flat to see Alex. Alec, sorry. I don't know why I always want to say Alex. <laughs> he asks her if, if she feels an overwhelming emotion for him the way that he does. I mean, he wants to confirm that she's feeling it too. And she says that she does. And they start to kiss. And who knows what could have happened in that flat if his friend had not shown up. And his friend does show up unexpectedly. And, of course, Laura has to run away. You know, she has to get out. Um, it's also tawdry, you know, especially for Laura. You know, you know, the thing about Laura and Alec, like, they're never going to go to some kind of seedy motel together. 
You know, they're much too refined and much too elegant to do something like that. But I think she already feels compromised by being in this flat with him and kissing him. And it just feels very tawdry to her. And she already feels like she's becoming, you know, cheap. Like there's a cheapness that she probably feels about it. That she's running around like, you know, like this is not her. This is not a mother of two children, you know, who does this behind her husband's back. I'm sure that is what's going through her mind that what has she become, you know, and she's running through the streets in the rain and I think she just feels degraded by all of it. She has to call Fred. She has to lie to to him again and she has to roam around for three hours because she's missed the train and then she goes back to the train station so she can get the last train Um, and Alex shows up and he doesn't want to end things yet with her, but Laura is increasingly, I think, reaching her breaking point. And she, I think a part of her absolutely loves him, but a part of her is desperate for it to be over. And yet she can't let him go. You know, she, she wants it to be over, but she can't let him go either. Um, her love for him and her passion is just too great and too strong even though she's able to acknowledge that there are things that are more important than her feelings. There are things more important than their relationship with each other and that they do need to keep that in mind. Um, There's really who they are together and then there's the lives that they have to lead apart and those things are always clashing and are in conflict. There's her sitting with Fred while he does the crossword puzzle and she puts you know, a record on so that she can hear music. And then there's her with Alec and the flat kissing, you know. And these these two parts of her are completely diametrically opposed almost. That this one woman is having to balance these two things, these two very different parts of herself. And she's having trouble doing that. She's having trouble being this dutiful wife, you know, who keeps the house and takes care of her children and her husband, and then being this woman who is with Alec, and who is lying, and who is betraying her husband, you know, and hurting him through what she's doing, even doing something that would hurt him if he knew about it. So it's this really complex portrait of a woman in turmoil a woman on the edge really a woman at her breaking point at times um and alec tells her that he's been offered a job in johannesburg south africa and he's going to take it he knows that it's really the only way out for them you know that he has to leave that they can't be together and it's tormenting her and they're both being torn apart by this and i tell you if i love anything i love a tormented love story i'm terrible i know i don't like the happy endings (laughs) I, i i am drawn to these like tormented love things like i'll watch movies about love triangles and like people who can't be together and unrequited love and all kinds of things. Like I'm, I'm sick. I know. 
I don't watch the Hallmark stuff, okay? I need like the the heavy duty dark things. Um, the tormented love. <laughs> That's, I mean, yeah. I don't know why. That's just how I am. So, but he wants to meet her one last time next Thursday before he leaves for South Africa. And, you know, he's he's leaving and he asks her to forgive him. And this is a really powerful scene where he's asking for forgiveness for meeting her, for removing the grit in her eye, for loving her and bringing her so much misery. Oh, God. This, this film is so well written, too. It has some beautiful lines in it, like... He's asking for forgiveness. He knows that that one moment, you know, where he took the grit out of her eye, he knows and she knows that it changed their lives forever, that they can't go back to who they were before that, that so much has changed that they have been changed by their relationship with each other, but it has also come at a great cost and that it's caused them a great deal of pain. And of course, she says, well, can you forgive me too? You know, she's been an active participant in it too. He has not forced her to do anything. But what I'm trying to say is that at times he has pushed back. You know, that when she's trying to say, let's be sensible. You know, it's kind of like when you have a friend who's maybe a bad influence on you. Where you say, no, I don't want to do it. And they're like, oh, come on. You know, it won't hurt. That's what I'm talking about. He's a little bit of a bad influence, you know, that she she seems to be more aware of like the morality issue of it whereas he pushes back against that at times but both of them have been active participants in in their affair and in their relationship so this is when the film circles back to the beginning this is the final thursday that they spend together that's what we saw at the beginning of the film was um was that and um where they were in the refreshment room at the train station you know looking very upset and the acquaintance came in and now we understand um why they are so upset because that was their last their that was their last day together before he <clears throat> leaves for South Africa and of course in the voiceover she talks about that day together how Alec hired a car and they spent the day walking and just being together. And then they went back to the train station. And now the scene from the beginning of the film replays. But it plays out in a way where our knowledge is expanded. And we actually hear the conversation between Alec and Laura. Whereas at the beginning, they we were far away from them. And we didn't actually hear everything that they were saying. And Laura talks about how she wants to die. But Alec says that she can't die because he wants to be remembered. Um, so the, so both of them want, want to remember their love for each other. They want to remember this romance. Oh, God, it's just so deeply romantic, that kind of line. Like, you can't die. I want to be remembered, you know, um... And of course, there's that previous scene of Laura's acquaintance showing up, the woman showing up, and Alec has to leave. And, and you know, she had obviously planned to see him off, to go outside and, and stand there as he got on the train and then watch the train drive by. And she isn't able to do that. 
they are tragically deprived of that, you know, deprived of parting and, and her seeing him off the way that she wanted to. And instead, they're forced into this situation where he just has to abruptly leave. And she can't follow him. She has to stay in the refreshment room. Um, she can only sit there, you know, and try to to keep everything inside. And, and that's what's so amazing, I think, about Celia Johnson and Trevor Howard. But Celia Johnson absolutely carries this film. And... Um, taps into you know so much of the pain and so many of the emotions that this whole film is about her having to contain explosive emotions but also convey them subtly through her facial expressions um and she she does that in this scene where she's sitting there at this table and she knows what's happening she knows this is the last time she's going to see this man that she loves and she can't move. She can't see him out. She can't go watch the train pass by. It's just over, you know, and in the worst possible way. And you see it on her face. She's not able to hide it. They don't, they can't hide it completely, you know. So he collects his coat or something and, and he just briefly places his hand on her shoulder God, it's too much. <laughs> like that gesture, like when we had seen that gesture at the beginning of the film in the first scene, that was just a simple gesture, like, oh, a pat on the back or something. I'm talking about when you watch it for the first time. But then now, when you see that gesture, it is imbued with so much power and meaning. Of this is the last time he will touch her. This is the last time they will be in each other's presence. This is the last time that they will be together in the same room. I mean, maybe one day they'll see each other on a street corner and pass each other by. And wave or, or give a nod if he comes back to London. And maybe she'll be with her two children or, or with Fred. And she'll just look at him and he'll look at her. Oh, God. Just because she got a piece of grit in her eye. You know what I mean? Like, But that one gesture of him placing the hand on her shoulder. I go to pieces. I go to pieces over that. And he walks away. He walks out of the room. And he's gone. And she just has to sit there and accept it. But she can't. She hears the train, and while her friend, while the woman, I don't know if it's really a friend, it's more of an acquaintance, but while this woman's back is turned, she goes to get something, some kind of food or something. Laura rushes from the refreshment room, and she is about to throw herself in front of the train. That is what she's going to do. She wants to end it. She wants to end it all and just throw herself in front of this train. So like I said at the beginning, oh, she seems like this ordinary housewife. She just seems like, you know, your run-of-the-mill, typical kind of person. But here she is, pushed to the edge 
where she is almost going to commit suicide. You don't always know the emotions that are inside of a person. You don't always know what somebody's dealing with. You don't know how they could be hurting or or feeling torn apart or devastated. And that's what she feels. I think she feels absolutely devastated by it. And she just doesn't want to think or be alive anymore. And she doesn't want to feel the pain anymore. And it's, it's this stunning scene where the train passes and there's steam and her hair blows up and it's like a complete mess. And there's lights and that, that illuminate her face. And she's just overcome. You know, she just looks so beaten down. She looks so devastated. Oh my God. I can't handle this film. Like Celia Johnson. Why, why is she not better known? I need to know. Um, everything's on her face. This is a woman pushed to the edge that has reached her breaking point and is almost going to commit suicide in front of a train. I mean, it's just heartbreaking. And again, David Lean films this in a really fascinating way with the steam and the lights and the sound of the train and the look on her face and the, the, the messy hair and, and all of that to convey the intensity of her emotions and how far it's gone for her, you know. She's absolutely tormented. Absolutely tormented. So in love with this man, but has to let him go. She has to do the right thing. And that's not easy. That's never an easy thing to do. But that is who she is. Fundamentally, that is who she is. That she will not be with Alec because she feels that duty to her children and to her husband. But a part of me is like, I just want her to be with Alec. I want her to like jet set around the world in her glamorous clothes and be happy with Alec. But I know that that's not who Laura is. That's not because if that was who she, she is, she'd have no qualms. She'd have no conflict. She wouldn't be tormented about what she's doing. But she is. She's a decent person, you know, for better or worse, because I want these two people to be together. Um, and every time I watch it, I know that they're not going to be together. I know, I know how this goes, but there is just something really beautiful about watching the film, about watching their love unfold, about watching these two people who started as strangers become people who fall in love and they do not consummate the relationship they do not have sex obviously but they shared a deep emotional connection and you can feel that and I think he opened up possibilities for her but he also brought in a lot of pain for her at the same time that's why this is it's a difficult romantic film and like I said before where you're conflicted as an audience because you know what these two people are doing is wrong and yet you do want them to be together and so at the end we're back in the living room with Fred you know the place where she's been narrating this entire story in her head going back through the last few weeks the meeting of Alec their Thursdays together their kisses together their parting 
at the end. Um, and of course, she's told him none of this. He knows none of it. It's only her interior monologue. And she can't say any of it out loud. But she has said it to herself. And um, all of it has to be kept inside. And she'll have to bear that for the rest of her life. And maybe one day it will ease. Maybe it will. She says at the at the beginning of the film, this can't last. You know, this misery can't last. Nothing lasts. Um, in that beautiful monologue. But it may not last, but when you're in the pain of it, when you're in the intensity of it, it is shattering, you know. And even though she hasn't said any of it, Fred can definitely sense that something is wrong, that something is not right. Finally, finally, this man wakes up from his crossword puzzle. Because <laughs> the whole film, he's been very sedate, very distant, you know. And not picking up on her cues at all and, and the way that she feels. Um, and he finally senses that something's up, something's wrong here. The way that Laura is sitting there. And um, he can tell, I think, that she's struggling and that she's hurting. And he says to her that she's been gone a long time or something like that maybe he has felt that distance with her and he says that he's glad that she's come back to him and then they finally embrace so so it sort of ends on I guess a hopeful note you know a happier note that perhaps their relationship will you know obviously be okay and maybe they'll reconnect with each other or something like that it's it's not really clear. We don't know. We know that Alex's going to South Africa and she's going to accept the life that she has with Fred and her children. Um, it's not the easy thing to do, but sometimes the right thing is not the easy thing. You know, it's not. And um, I think now, I, I wonder if a film like this has the same power that it did in, in 1945 or even through the the late 40s and the 50s because nowadays you know I don't know the statistics about divorce but it's pretty common you know a lot of kids grow up in a divorced household um a lot of people cheat it's it's a part of life it's part of the experience sometimes of a relationship people don't have a lot of qualms anymore about cheating it, it it happens quite a bit. I, I wonder if people nowadays even can totally understand that sense of duty um, that Laura and Alec feel. I don't even know if that's relatable anymore. I think most people nowadays would be like, well, God, why can't they just be together? Why don't you just get divorced? Why don't you just leave your, your families and be together? Um, and why don't you just think about your happiness and especially here in America, it's all about make yourself happy. And we obsess with the individual and the self and do what you want to do and do what makes you feel good. And I'm not saying there's not morality in the U United States. I'm not saying that, but there is a heavy focus on the individual and about what you want, you know. And I think this film is obviously a relic from another time where these characters in particular did feel a sense of moral duty and they did feel like they didn't want to break up their marriages 
and that instead of putting their feelings first and their desires first, they were thinking about the unit of their families, especially Laura. She was thinking in a more communal way of, I don't want to hurt my children. I don't want to hurt my husband who I do love. And that's where that came from, you know, of not wanting to put her own feelings first. And, um, I'm conflicted about it because obviously, you know, I believe that women's desires matter and, you know, women should be able to do what they want in life. But for this character, that just wasn't her path. I totally wish her and Alec could have been together. But at that time, you know, in 1938, the when it, when it is set and then it's released in 1945, that just wasn't the norm. I'm sh- I'm sure there was divorce, but I don't think it was very common. And people did stay in marriages where maybe they weren't happy. I'm not advocating that, you know, that you should stay in a relationship that you don't want to be in. But Laura did love her husband and she did love her children. And so I don't even know if some of this can resonate with people now because we live in such a different world. Um, But I do think it has something to say about, you know, thinking about other people and about how they could be hurt or how they could be harmed. You know, that she didn't want to hurt her children. She didn't want to hurt her husband. And she had a sense of values and principles that she wanted to live by. And, you know, I think that's admirable, you know, and I, I think that matters. You know, and I did think about throughout the film, I was like, God, what would that do to her kids? What would that do to her whole family? And then, of course, she would be judged by, you know, the people in society and the different friends. And it would just, it would be really tough. It would be a tough thing for her to get divorced. And unfortunately, there would have been a stigma to it because of the time that she lived in. It just, it would have been really complicated. And, but at the same time, you wish these two people could have been together and could have had a great love story. It only lasted for a few weeks and they just fell so deeply in love with each other. And, um, that's why I think it's a beautiful love story and a beautiful romance. But in the end, I think they did the right thing, even though it wasn't the easy thing to do, but to keep their families together and to, maintain their own sense of of decency you know right and and their own sense of morality about what was right for them so it's it's a beautiful film a beautiful story but also very heartbreaking because from the beginning you know that they really can't be together but they do fall head over heels in love with each other and um, I guess in our minds we can sort of imagine what their life together might have been like and um But I think they definitely changed each other. And I don't think Laura will ever be the same after her experience with Alec. I think it definitely changed her. And um, she will live with those memories for the rest of her life. And she says at the beginning that she wants to remember them for the rest of her life. She doesn't want to forget. She wants to remember Alec. And so this will just be sort of this secret that she takes to her grave, this secret that she um, keeps with her, that she will remember to the end of her days, as she put it earlier in the film. And he probably will too. And so for the rest of their lives, there will always be this thread between the two of them that connects them. 
and only they know about it. I get I get all romantic when I talk about this film, but it has a lot to offer. It's a simple story, but it's got some wonderful creative techniques in the way that the story is told. And to me, it's just it's as close to perfection as we're ever going to get, I think. Just every single thing about it is just so wonderful. And a, just a beautifully written film, a beautifully directed film. And one of those gems that even though it's really not really well known in Britain and I guess the throughout the UK, not quite as maybe well known in the United States as it should be. So I definitely hope this episode inspired you maybe to watch it before you listen to the episode or just inspires you to rewatch it or to think about it in a different way. However, I've um, shared my thoughts and um, I, I hope I did. I hope I did the film justice and I hope that you feel like I provided some valuable insight into it. It's just a film that's really meaningful for me. It's one that I revisit and it's one that came to me through a really special way through Turner Classic Movies and through Robert Osborne. And so in a lot of ways, you know, as I was talking about earlier about these moments in your life, these random moments that can change your life forever that's what happened to me through this of what if I hadn't been watching Turner classic movies that night? What if I hadn't seen Robert Osborne's introduction to the film and got interested in it? I would have never seen this film. And what if I hadn't seen his introduction to the passion of Joan of Arc and watched it and started to fall in love with cinema and, and, the art house cinema, you know, and to understand that cinema can be art and that it can be something much more deeper um, or something deeper than, you know, the mainstream stuff that, that gets released. It's, you know, these little moments happen in our lives. These people come into our lives like Robert Osborne or whoever, um, and they can really change us forever. And even if they don't stay in our lives, even if they keep going or something happens, what they shared with you and what they showed you and what you discovered through them and what you felt with them for them will stay with you for the rest of your life. So even though Laura can't be with Alec, even though their love is not really possible, even though she goes through a lot of pain because of that relationship, she will always be changed by it. And it made an impact on her. Even though Alec is not in her life anymore, he still changed her life and changed her. And so that's how I feel about cinema in general, that these films can come into our lives and they can change us or they can lead us in different directions. Like I talked about earlier, where even if it's not the greatest film, even if it's not a brief encounter, um, maybe it'll introduce you to a writer or a person or a concept or an idea or whatever 
and that can lead to new discoveries and that can affect your life. You never know. So I think the important thing is to be open to it, is to open yourself to discovery, to open yourself to to these things, you know, be open and be receptive to it. Um, I think that's really important as well. So I've gone on about Brief Encounter long enough. Hope you enjoyed this episode. Until next time, keep watching great films. Bye for now.